This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So last month, uh, Lynn and Patty's peer group met at uh, my house. And as we were hosting that evening, uh, we met in the backyard. I have a little fire pit in my backyard. And we were meeting in the backyard. And I built this fire pit shortly after we moved in. It was one of the very first things I did. I just, I love having a fire going. It's one of my favorite things in the world. But I put this metal fire ring in the center and I set some large bricks around the ring, around the base, some prettier stones on top. It's a nice little fire pit, right? And uh, as the night went on, we broke out the marshmallows and um, we were, were getting ready to roast to make some s'mores. And Christy picked up one of the sticks that had already been used had some marshmallow residue on it. And she took the stick with the sticky stuff on the edge of it and she drug it along the edge of my nice black fire pit ring, right? To get that sticky marshmallow stuff off. And she left the marshmallow artifacts there for everybody to see. Um, and I didn't quite like that, right? And so, you know, I'm a really good husband. Um, and I asked her, hey, could you not do that anymore? Um, but like a good wife, right? She's a really good wife. Uh, she didn't take me too seriously. And minutes later, she did it again. I saw her do it again. She marshmallow residue right on the fire pit ring. I asked her again, please don't do that. Um, she, she questioned me on it in front of everybody, right? Kind of, kind of challenged me. And minutes later, she did it a third time, right? And, uh, so with a little more vigor, I said, please stop. Uh, don't do that. And the small group, <laughs> the small group was all around watching this. And later Lynn said to me, Pastor, you got a temper on you. Um, really? Uh, so let's fast forward then a few weeks after that. About a month ago, I started building this yurt in my backyard. A yurt is like this semi-permanent uh, tent-like structure. But it's on this huge, sturdy platform I have this incredible guy, a newfound friend. He's helping me build this, really knows his stuff. Excellent carpenter, architect by trade. He's doing great work, but he's like fixated on making sure things are right and that this platform is like super fortified and super strong. Um, but the thing is, right, this project has taken way longer than I anticipated. And all along, right, just about every day, I've thought we'd get farther than we actually have. Um, and so a couple of Thursdays ago, that happened too. We didn't get as far as I thought we were going to get that day. And we, we did end the day on a decent work note, but after a few hours of building this thing, uh, I came in, I was all sweaty and I was all stinky. I'd been staining wood all day. I reeked and I was tired and I was hungry. And I come in the door and Christy asked me if I'll go pick up the kids from sports practice and I didn't want to, uh, but I did. And so after picking her, uh, Lydia up, I needed to go to Home Depot, right, to, to pick up some tarps 
to cover this platform that we had been working on. I couldn't find the tarps when I went in. I, I just wanted to get into the store and like get out. Right? It had been a long day. I was tired. I was hungry. I was stinky. And finally, I found them. I found a worker to tell me where they were. And the price. Oh, my goodness. Like, have you ever looked at tarp prices? Oh, my goodness. Some tarps were almost 200 bucks. Tarps. Um, and so, I mean, it was frustrating. I couldn't find these tarps. And I finally settled on the ones I needed, the cheap ones. And I went up front. And I remembered, crap, we need zip ties to bind the tarps together in the grommets. And so... I was already in line, and um, I started wandering around the store, huge store, looking for zip ties, and I couldn't find them. So I had to have somebody else like tell me, you know, sometimes Home Depot and Lowe's can feel like a maze, right? And so I asked the worker, where's the zip ties? Guess where they were? Aisle 42, literally as far back in the store as you can go, literally the back corner of the store, and uh, I got them, and I got out of there. I got out of Home Depot. We left the parking lot. We're sitting at a red light, and it turns green, and the guy uh, four cars ahead just sits at the light. It's green. It's not moving. And it's just nothing. Like, no, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm stinky. I'm frustrated. Well, he finally goes, but I get stopped, right? I get stopped at the light. The light turns green again, and there's a bunch of three teens in a silver Mercedes Benz in front of me, and they don't move, Right? Instead, you know what they're doing? They're sitting in their car dancing, right, with the, the music out loud. I make my way around them, and I look, I look over at them like I'm going to, you know, and they're just laughing at me. Um, so I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm stinky, I'm more frustrated. In my frustration, I'm like, you idiot drivers, right? Um, and just as I say that, like I pull out in front of somebody and cut somebody off, so I'm the real idiot driver. I eat my words. I'm hungry. I want to. I go to Burger King uh, to pick up dinner. I put on my blinker to turn in, and boom, the restaurant's closed. Right? Literally, the booths that used to be inside the Burger King were sitting out in the parking lot. And I'm like, I just got off the interstate and into Baratania traffic for this, so I'm more frustrated. I find my way back to the interstate, and you know, I'm getting on the ramp. And I'm about to get over, but the guy behind me goes first. He cuts me off, and I'm ready to kill somebody at this point. Um, I'm goal-driven. I'm a goal-driven person, and I'm not going to be deterred. I find another Burger King, and I make my, <laughs> I, I, I make my order, and I sit at, I'm sitting at the light afterward, and I see I'm looking out my left window. I hear these two guys cussing at each other. One guy in a wheelchair, another young guy, and the young guy walks up to the guy in the wheelchair and he acts like he's going to punch. I'm like trying to video this. like, um, And then I look over and my daughter's eating the french fries already in the seat. Uh, I'm like, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. Uh, we pull into the driveway and poof, Lydia spills the french fries on the floor. What's left of them? And, uh, and um, so it's getting really dark. We've got to get these tarps on the platform. So Lydia runs and sits the bag of Burger King on the kitchen counter. We go out and we put these tarps up in 20-mile-an-hour winds, which is not easy. And uh, I can't find the ropes that I need. And uh, just as we get the tarps on, we're heading into the house, and Christy turns right before she opens the door and says, I have some bad news. And she says, the dog ate all the french fries. 
So, like, I'm tired, I'm stinky, I'm hungry, and my boiling point has been reached. I didn't explode, but I was, like, super grumpy. Uh, I wasn't kind, uh, and I had lost it. Lost what? I had lost my patience. I lost my patience. So the next morning, I wake up, and I'm thinking about all the crap that happened the previous day. Why? But, but why was I reacting grumpily toward the kids, right? I mean, there were a bunch of other factors involved, too. It wasn't their fault I got lost in the store, for example, or that the guy didn't go at the green light. Um, why were they catching the brunt of my grumpiness? And I began reading some psychology research, and I came across this long-standing theory developed in the 1940s um, by a research team that was led by a man named John Dollard. And part of Dollard's theory was that frustration and anger are often the result of inhibited or blocked goals. Again, if you know me at all, you know I'm a highly driven person. I'm a goal, I'm a very task-oriented and goal-driven person. I have high expectations when goals are in view. And the way that Dollard's theory puts it is that when someone has a goal, uh, they of course expect certain results and certain outcomes. And sometimes an obstacle is going to present itself. And for many that's fine, but sometimes... It's not just that like one obstacle gets in the way, right? It's that many obstacles like that day for me get in the way. And so a driven person can handle an obstacle. But what happens when there are repeated obstacles? Well, frustration begins to set in. And there's this loop, you can see it, that starts to happen here, right? It's a loop where the person cycles through frustration and anger or this obstacle and then frustration, obstacle, more frustration. And the anger, right, it can lead to acts of aggression verbally or physically just blowing up or the anger can get resolved. It can lead to catharsis. That's a word of the week, which you've probably heard. Uh, catharsis. It's the dissipation of negative energy. In other words, reaching a place of calm. A kind of healing, if you will. Now, with the fire pit and marshmallows, I think Lynn might have been wrong, possibly. We talked about this recently. I called her up. We were talking about, I don't think I was short-tempered. I think I was actually patient. <laughs> but, but right, my, the patience was repeatedly tested and was going to eventually manifest itself in anger, as we saw, or catharsis. And on that long day of stacked-up events, events I, where I felt like the universe was just against me and out to get me, like plotting against me, I don't think I was short-tempered. I was actually long-suffering, I think. Very patient. My goals of getting the yurt done, getting in and out of the store quickly, getting dinner, etc., they were all simply blocked. And it was, frustration was building and building. I was stuck in that loop. And it took quite a bit for me to get to this final state of grump. And, you know, I don't think my goals were unrealistic either. Here's what I think the problem was. I felt targeted. <laughs> but when I stop and think back about all the events, the reality is nobody was targeting me. 
That's nonsense. Not the yurt. The yurt wasn't targeting me. Not the large store. Not the cars at the stoplights. Not the Burger King. And not the dog. Okay, maybe the dog. But so maybe the real issue was I needed to get rid of my victim mentality. Yeah? Can you relate? <laughs> um, if you're completely honest with yourself, you can. It's not just me, right? It's not just me. Come on, it's not just me. Reassure me. It's not just me. Thank you, Emma. I mean, you ever been in an emotional or a mental state where you felt like, man, everything and everyone's out to get me? You ever been there? Or that this is a real, real-time mind trickery kind of stuff where, man, is God doing this? Is God out to get me? Is God punishing me? Why? Is he doing this to me? The tyranny of why. I think why is absolutely the worst question to ask. And our bottom line this week is stop with why. A simple life hack for you. Simple bottom line. Don't even ask why. Don't ever ask why. Uh, because getting an answer to that is impossible. Because as soon as you get an answer, you can just ask why of the answer. So have you ever felt like God was like, or the, the planet was like colluding against you? Ever had the feelings of like being God's victim? I mean, like he was playing maybe some sick or twisted game and you were right in the middle of it? Like what kind of God would do this to me? I've been faithful. I'm his child. Like what is going on? It's a difficult place to be in, yeah? And I know this is a long segue sort of into today's focal passage, but it's necessary. And it's necessary because I think that's the lens that we have to see Abraham and his struggles through in today's passage. I mean, you think back to the beginning of Abraham's story. Think about everything we've seen him endure for the last five or six months. He's called to leave his father, his family, his homeland. And God makes him a promise. And the promise seems elusive. Did you ever feel like that? <laughs> like you've done everything God has asked you to do and he just didn't come through. I mean, you weren't obedient to the best of your ability. Well, that wasn't enough. Then you get into your own mind and you start doubting yourself. And before you know it or even realize it, you start viewing yourself as a victim, even a victim of God. Man, Abraham lost it. He lost his dad. He lost his home family. He lost his homeland. His brother, Haran, to death. His nephew, Lot. His sister-in-law, Lot's wife. His nieces, Lot's daughters. He fought in a war that he started. He watched Sodom and Gomorrah burn. He lost his wife to Pharaoh and then he lost her to Abimelech and then he lost the relationship to Sarah because of the relationship with Hagar and then she was banished by Sarah and then later again, Sarah wanted her and Ishmael banished a second time and he lost both of them that time and then he nearly lost Isaac by killing him up on top of the mountain and then he lost the relationship with Isaac and then as we read, or as we read last week, and we'll read again today, he finally loses Sarah. 
And this dude, Abraham, experienced so much loss. If anyone knew loss in life, it was Abraham. And if you've ever been in a moment of loss, like of a loved one, of a friendship, of a job, of a home, of a car, of money, of a memory, of friendship, whatever, Abraham could relate to you. This man, he kept getting in his own way and he kept getting in God's way, but he, just like every single one of us breathing in this room, had a hard time seeing that. But it's sad because the promises that God made him, I'll make you a multitude of nations, I'll give you a multitude of land, you know what? They never materialize, at least not in full, or really even in small, in Abraham's lifetime. Did God break a promise? Abraham dies in chapter 25 of Genesis, and I can't help but wonder if he goes to his grave wondering if God had failed him. If God had lied to him even. If it was all a sham. Might his headstone, if he had one, read something like, Abraham, a man with goals never achieved. Here lies Abraham, a man whose goals were consistently blocked. Here lies Abraham, a man stuck in the frustration obstacle loop. Frustration, then anger. Catharsis is needed, and for Abraham, perhaps... The catharsis, the healing, the calm finally comes when he dies. You don't have to deal with it anymore. I mean, how does a man who banishes his wife and youngest son, a man who nearly murders his oldest son, and a man who starts a war and murders people, how does he live with himself after all that? Doesn't it all just have to like add up and stack up on him? take its toll on him. And we're going to see in just a moment how today's passage, it only intensifies Abraham's pain. We're going to read the end of Genesis 22 and then all of Genesis 23. So here's where we're going to start. I want you to read with me. We read this a couple weeks ago, but I want to revisit it briefly. Um, it's a bunch of names, but this has a point, a couple of points to it. After these things, this was right after he almost killed Isaac up on the mountain. That's what after means. After these things, Abraham was told, listen, Milcah, it's one of his relatives, also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Bildash, Jidlath, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. And Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, also called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And you'll remember that I said in the previous message that these verses are in the main, right? Functioning to get us from the near killing of Isaac to Rebecca, like getting Rebecca into the story, into, into the next part of Genesis, which is the, not the Abraham cycle, but the Isaac cycle, where we start to focus on Isaac. That's true. 
But another major function of these seemingly boring verses, right? Um, <sighs> Look at what happens. Did you count the number of sons that Abraham's brother ends up with? You remember that, that in chapter 21, Abraham's actions lead him, uh, actions nearly lead to Ishmael's death. 22, Abraham's actions nearly lead to Isaac's death, his two boys, his two kids. At the end of chapter 22, he essentially has no sons with him. No Ishmael anymore and no Isaac. No Sarah, she dies. No family, just hired men, guards. And to drive the knife into Abraham, the text, Scripture, right? As Abraham loses it all, it offers a reminder, but hey, Abraham, you screw up. Hey, you remember your brother Nahor, the brother who never left Ur, who never left your homeland? Hey, he's got a ton of land back there. And he's got family. In fact, he's got at least 12 sons, if you count them here. What a jab. Here lies Abraham, overshadowed by his brother Nahor. Here lies Abraham, overshadowed by his brother Nahor. And of course, he's not dead yet, but Abraham feels like he wants to be. This is a lot more, or a lot for one person to handle. And to top it off, the Hethites or the Hittites, they're going to take advantage of Abraham when he's in this sad state. He's vulnerable and they know it. And they'll take him for all he's worth. We're going to keep reading. And as we do, I want you to notice there's this three-stage negotiation that takes place in the text. Namely, this move from politeness to politics to the real concern, price. So let's keep reading here. It says, Abraham rose up from before his dead and spoke to the children of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a foreigner living with you. Give me a family tomb with you that I may bury my dead, Sarah, from before me. The children of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Oh, listen, 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 listen to us. My Lord, listen to us. You are a prince of God among us. And the best of our tombs bury your dead. None of us will withhold from you his tomb for burying your dead. And Abraham rose up and he bowed himself to the people of the land, to the children of Heth. And so Abraham, who finally seems to have some concern for Sarah when she dies, now has her corpse on hand, her body, and nowhere to put it. And so if he doesn't find something to do with it, he's going to lose honor, he's going to lose public honor, he's going to lose face. And you notice, by the way, that the text has no other relatives here. Isaac, for example, isn't at the funeral. He isn't mentioned at least. He isn't at Sarah's burial. In my estimation, this is a super broken family. And here's the thing. The children of Heth, the Hittites as they're called, they know Abraham's in this vulnerable state. And they can use that to their advantage. So, as is typical of bartering in the Middle East still today, if you go there, they begin with a, a veneer, a thin veneer of politeness. Oh, Abe, 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 Abe. We know you're in need. You can use our burial ground. It's a double cave. Cave of Machpelah. But here's the thing. 
it'll remain their land. And so they, if they want to take her body out later or do something different with the land later, they can. And Abraham won't have any say about it. And he knows that. They know that. But they also want to preserve their own social status by appearing willing to help someone in need. But what this really is, in essence, is taking advantage of a very vulnerable man. And there, friends, is another place that you can probably make a connection. Have you ever been just in a, a, a state of like pure vulnerability and someone tried to take advantage of you? There you were in mourning or in pain and like that person made a selfish move. I mean, you were hurt or upset and they said something that just like ripped the wound of the moment open even more. They saw it as a moment where they could remind you, I warned you about that. I I told you to watch out. Uh, I told you to be careful. You didn't listen to me. You should have listened to me. They're just like rubbing it in. In your moment of weakness, instead of consoling you, they make a power grab and remind you that they're above you morally, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. We see it all the time uh, when someone in the family dies, right? Uh, Siblings fighting over a house or possessions or land and so on or spouses and ex-spouses going into litigation days after a loss. Relatives making, making moves to grab a position like power of attorney, a move which positions them to make decisions that will mostly work in their favor when it's all said and done. In these moments where there should be hugging and sharing openly, you actually have to be extra guarded. Because being taken advantage of, you know, it just lies right around the corner. And so does all of the stress and angst and anxiety that comes with it. But there's the opposite too, where people fake concern, fake care, fake politeness. I watched this movie recently titled Everyone's Fine. Um, might have been Everybody's Fine. Everyone's Fine, Everybody's Fine. It, it's a good movie. I commend it to you. Uh, I'm not going to ruin it for you. But the context of the movie is uh, that the main character, his name's Frank Good. He's this retired father of four. Uh, and his wife has recently died. And he's trying to get all four of the adult kids around the dinner table again. That's his, like, one goal. But life seems to keep getting in the way. And so he decides, if he can't come to my, if they can't come to my dinner table, I'm just going to go visit them. And so uh, he sets off on this trip across the United States to visit his four adult kids. And what he finds is that in each instance, none of them is actually doing as well as they'd have him believe over the phone. Just below the surface of the phone conversations, below the surface of their lives, there's turmoil lurking in each of his kids' homes. There are two scenes that really captured the essence of the movie for me. The first one, he's talking with his daughter Rosie, and he's inquiring why the kids never tell him much. And she says to her dad, look, we we could just talk to mom. And he replies, oh, you couldn't just talk to me? And she responds, well, she was a good listener. You were a good talker. And he says, well, so that's good. We, We made a good team. But then we find out later what those conversations with mom were like. There's this flashback in the movie. And Frank, he's talking to one of his sons in the scene. And he says, you lied to me. You didn't want to be with me. 
And the son replies, the truth is, dad, there are lots of things we didn't tell you, but that doesn't mean we want to hurt you. Mom didn't always tell you everything, and you know that. He says, so what am I supposed to do? And the son says, act as if nothing's wrong. That's what mom did. It's best for all of us. Act as if nothing's wrong. That's what mom did. That's what's best for all of us. And that line like captures the, the, the essence of this family. They go about acting as if nothing's wrong when so much is. And in the end, he seems to buy into that lie. If he'd had the chance to talk with his wife again, and she were to ask, so Frank, how are the kids? His response, the title of the movie, would be everybody's fine. Everyone's fine. Maybe you know what that's like to cover over your family dysfunction. To go about your everyday life and put on this show as if everybody's fine. Including you. When that's not the case. Maybe like the sons of Heth or like Abraham, you see, you use politeness as a guise, a disguise. And in the story of Abraham, no, everybody's not fine. Everybody's life is screwed up, messed up, hurt, taking advantage of one another, even in states of vulnerability. So don't miss it, right? The politeness here is just a cover. It's the first of the three layers because in the next exchange, we get closer, a little bit closer to the real issue. Here it's not politeness that masks the main concern, but now it's going to be politics. By the way, uh, I should note that um, you know, God never speaks in this chapter at all, not once. He's all but absent, action-wise. Abraham's called a prince of God, but that's probably just another move of politeness, ego catering, if you will. And it all raises the question, hang with me here, it all raises the question, where is Abraham's God in the midst of Abraham's massive amount of loss and grief and mourning? Where is he? That's real life right there. When you're in the thick of it and it, it feels like God is just gone, like absent, missing, hiding, silent. You, you feel empty, alone. You, you can sink into depression from that and just be devoured by it. You can start to deeply doubt your faith but we dare not ask why. I remember visiting someone in the hospital once and the individual was just weeping in the hospital bed right in front of me. He was crying out, why, pastor? Tears just streaming down his face. Why, pastor? Why, why is God letting this happen to me? Why? Why me? The tyranny of why. Why, pastor? Why? I had to stop him. In the middle of the hospital room, in the, midst of, in the midst of all that, what for him felt like God's absence. And I had to just redirect this question. I said, brother, <laughs> this is, I know it's not time for a theology lesson, but maybe that isn't the best question right now. Can I suggest a different question? Sure, pastor. Ooh, sure, pastor. Let's stop asking why. How about we just ask, how? God, how 
can I get through this with your help? How are we going to get through this together? And immediately he calmed. Immediately. Whole demeanor changed. It's such a difficult thing to be in the throes of life and feel like God has bailed on you. Or like you're deaf or blind to God's speakings and His comings and goings. That's tough. Stop asking why. Stop with why. Let's continue on. Here's what the text says. He spoke with them saying, if it's within your hearts to bury my dead from before me, listen to me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar. That means bring to me, the, the ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may sell me the cave of Machpelah. Well, that's interesting. He's asking a second party or a third party to go ask somebody else who owns the cave, really. Hey, you guys go ask him if I can buy it from you. That he may sell me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at uh, the end of his field. For the full price, let him sell it to me among you as a family tomb. Now Ephron was sitting in the midst of the children of Heth, the Hittites. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the children of Heth, even of all who went in the, the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, listen, listen to me. The field I, I give to you, and the cave that's in it I give to you, and the sight of the children of my people I give it to you, Go bury your dead. And so now we're shifting from politeness to politics. Abraham, he met him at the city gates, which is it's kind of the, the town square where formal business was often done in contract. And the sons of Heth, when the thin veil of politeness is seen through by Abraham, they realize they're found out. And so they send him to their superior. His name is Ephron. And Ephron, he's the one who really has the authority to sell the plot of land, this cave of Machpelah. It's at the end of a field, out of the way. But maybe that's the only way to get to it. And so if Abraham really wants the cave, he's going to have to pay for the whole thing, the field included. But it's important that the chain of command be followed, right? Politics are important here. Ephron too, he tries to play the politeness card, but we see it's a thin veil. And Abraham, again, sees right through it. He wants to skip the politics and get right to the price. But Ephron, he wants to make the political aspect clear. I'm in charge. I set the terms. This is my land. Play by my rules. Do what I say. What's worse, right, than dealing with stupid politics in the middle of losing a loved one? What's worse? Sometimes people who have lost a loved one don't even get to properly grieve the loved one. Sign this paper. Pay for this. Go here. Call this person. Schedule that. Get this ready. Do things in this order. Or do things in that order. The particularities themselves are enough. <laughs> but then the relatives start arguing about who's responsible for paying. Who's paying what? Who's scheduling this or that? Why isn't this sibling helping enough or that sibling helping enough? You know what I'm saying, right? I had a friend tell me not too long ago that his relative, a, a good and faithful Christian woman, passed away. She'd attended a church for a long time here on the island, but those in charge of her funeral activities, the siblings, were Buddhists. And they refused to have a Christian funeral for the sister. Instead, they had a Buddhist service for her. 
burning incense and the like. That's religion, but it's also politics. <laughs> Deep family politics. And Abraham, like my friend, had to deal with this in the wake of Sarah's death. And as I read all this, I can't help but notice how much our lives, thousands of years on, intersect with Abraham's at so many turns. Different contexts for sure, but similar problems. Similar issues. Similar family, similar family feuds. Same drama. Same politics. Life can be tough. Family can make life tough. Let's keep reading as we wind out the text here. Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, but if you will, but, he's countering, but if you will, please, just hear me out, listen to me. I'll give the price of the field. Take it from me, and I'll bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is 400 shekels of silver between me and you. What is that? Give it to me. Go bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver of which he had spoken in the hearing of the children of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, passing it to the merchant. And so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, the cave which was in it, and all the trees, interesting detail, that were in the field. Trees were expensive. They jacked up the price, I suppose. That were in all of its borders, went up to Abraham for purchase in the sight of the children of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that's in it went up to Abraham from the children of Heth as a family tomb. So we get down to the real issue, price, profits. They were never really interested in just being polite. The sons of Heth or Ephron. They were never interested in giving away free land, though it seems like that on the surface. In that culture, when someone does something nice for you, you must reciprocate. I've learned from our Japanese neighbor here on the island. She was raised very similarly. So many times we've gifted them with something, and within minutes, she's sending a gift right back to us. It's an honor-shame thing, right? She feels that to maintain her honor and to avoid shame, she must reciprocate, give it a gift back. It's the same exact thing in Abraham's culture. Nothing was free here. Something was expected in return. And knowing Abraham's out of options... They finally get down to brass tacks, 400 shekels. It's an inordinate amount of money in that time and for that kind of property. Perhaps it's like paying uh, more than a million for a a one-room shanty here on Oahu. Other properties are sold in Scripture with much more uh, prime real estate, and they don't even come close to 400 shekels. This is what we'd call a ripoff or more formally, extortion. Abraham, who was a a foreigner, and because of that, he wasn't actually supposed to be able to buy land at at all, much less at a regular price, but he lands this deal and he goes for it. And here's the irony of it all. God had promised Abraham the promised land, but when Abraham dies... 
What does he have in his possession? A cave with death in it, with a field and a path leading up to it. And it wasn't given to him. God didn't give that to him. He had to pay a massive amount of money, maybe his life savings. There are two ways to look at it, I suppose, from Abraham's perspective. One, God helped me get this. Or two, God was nowhere to be found in this. I'm going to my deathbed with a cave. What a promise, he's thinking. What a promise-keeping God I serve. Goal-blocked. Did Abraham head into the final years of his life with little to show for it all? Did he resent God for that? Was he confused? Did he struggle to work it all out? I wonder if you've ever thought similar things. I mean, I have. Uh, often, uh, I've thought of similar things. I remember how my mentor in college, he always used to ask me, he asked me the same question every time we met. I hated the question, didn't like the question. I knew it was coming every time we met. He, he'd always ask me, he'd say, Michael, if God had you here to do just one thing for him, and that's it, would you be okay with that? Ugh, the thought of that, right? A life lived to do just one thing for God and that's it? Every now and then that question comes back up just like it did in preparing for this message. Would I be fine with that? I mean, if my sole purpose was pleasing God by just doing one thing, would I be okay with that? Would you? Would Abraham? Was his sole purpose in life just to have a kid with Sarah in a foreign land? Like, that's it? The whole point? <laughs> really? The, the bumper sticker on the back of his chariot or a wagon says, absentee dad of Isaac and absentee husband of Sarah. Was, was the point to realize in his final years that he had failed life miserably? Whatever the point was or the points were, the reality is, is Abraham, like me, and like many of us, was no stranger to seeing his goals blocked, and he was no stranger to the frustration, sometimes the aggression, and sometimes the anger that ensues. And he was no different than any of us in that in such situations, something's got to give. Some catharsis is needed. Now, I've often heard a lot of preachers say, I don't know where you're at in life today. I don't know what you're going through. You know, but the reality is, as your pastor, I know where many of you are at. I look out across the room and I know where a lot of you are at. I know what a lot of you are going through. I know your struggles. I know your heartaches right now. I know where you're at in life today. And maybe, maybe you're at that point where something's got to give. Some catharsis is needed desperately. Some healing is needed. Maybe it seems like God's absence. And all... I got for you. All I can tell you is to just turn to Him. Just call on Him. Seek Him. And don't try to cover things up. Don't act like everybody's fine. Don't act like everything's fine. He's your catharsis, your healing, the true resolver of tension 
when you've lost it, whatever it is for you right now, turn to Him. And lean on the people, the brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles in this community. Whatever you do, don't try to go it alone. Don't act. We're we are our brothers and sisters keepers. And here at this place, at the bridge, in this family, we won't pray on vulnerability. We'll pray with you in your vulnerability. Amen? Amen. Let's stand so I can bless you. You would turn your hands upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go not covering things up, not acting, turning to Him. And then, brothers and sisters, go in peace.